look at the, the theme of <coughs> work, or you could say expanding at the theme of our labor, our leisure, and even uh, laziness. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. I'm going to read from Proverbs 6 and then from Colossians 3. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. And from Colossians 3, whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Let's pray. God, as we come to hear about your wisdom for our work, we pray that you would use your word to work on us so that our view of work is reshaped according to your word so that our attitude about it is reshaped so that even our actions and diligence and faithfulness in it is reshaped by your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, since this is a sermon on the topic of work, I thought it would be fitting that we start out by doing some math at the outset. And this math problem is meant to impress on you the significance of why we need to think about how how God's word speaks to our work and how our Christian faith integrates with our work. So let's say that the average work week of of anyone in full-time vocation or calling consists of 50 hours a week. Okay, And then let's say that you have, for sake of argument, three weeks off per year with vacation and then various holidays. So we're going to multiply 50 hours a week with 49 weeks a year. This is very hard for me. I'm not very good at math, okay? I had to do this beforehand. That's 2,450 hours a year with those calculations. And then next, let's say for the sake of this exercise that you start working full-time around the age of 22 and that you are able to retire, that you don't have to work full-time at the age of 65. And I actually think I did my math wrong. So I have 43 years here. I think it's actually 44. But we'll say 43 years of full-time work, 2,450 hours a year, which comes out to 105,350 hours in a lifetime. But we're missing some factors in this math. That doesn't account for your first part-time job that you had. Coffee shop for me, restaurant, umping baseball games. It doesn't account for the internship, whether unpaid or paid, the apprenticeship hours. It doesn't account for those grueling childhood years where you had to clean your room and you had to do the dishes for well below minimum wage pay. Okay? It doesn't account for the newborn years when mom is on the clock 24-7, 365. And vacation time, as I was told by my wife, is just doing what you do at home somewhere else. (laughs) It doesn't account for Saturdays, which amounted to a day off of work from the office. So you could work at home fixing the thing that broke while you were working at the office. If you factor all that work in and things I've left out to our previous calculation, you get a much 
much larger number that I cannot even begin to quantify. And I didn't account for all the study, the academic years. And what that unquantifiable number shows us is that whether we like it or not, work is an ever-present reality of life. It is with us wherever we go, whatever season of life we are in, from the grueling childhood years to the leisure years of later life. And speaking of those leisure years of later life, since we live in the leisure capital of the world, even for those of you who are retired, and I've, I've heard this out of your own mouths, I'm sure at some point you found yourself not working full-time, but with so many tasks, so many appointments, so many things on your to-do list that you wondered how it was that you ever found time previously for full-time work. And so since work, in whatever form it takes, is an ever-present reality of life, we need God's wisdom so that we can be people who work heartily as working for the Lord. We need God's wisdom so that what we do with this unquantifiable amount of time is integrated with this Christian faith that we confess. How do we do that? Well, first, to work according to God's wisdom, we need to understand the dignity and value of work. We need to understand, first and foremost, the dignity and value of work. Work starts with our attitude towards work and our outlook of work. What is your primary attitude toward the work that is in front of you? What is your most prevalent attitude when it comes to having to do a task? Kids, when you're asked by your parents to help around the house, are you so grateful for all that mom and dad provide for you that your primary and most prevalent response is, mom and dad, it would be my pleasure to wash these dishes that I did not buy, which held food that I did not prepare, which was so delicious. I'm going to do this with great delight. Or do you complain and come up with every excuse why you can't do it? Mom and Dad, I cannot take this garbage out. Did you hear that in Hungryland there was a Florida panther on the loose? He could be roaming our streets this very minute. My safety is in danger. Or as uh, one of my kids, I, I was teaching about this sermon, kind of giving them an overlay of it, just the, the dignity of work, trying to impress that on them. And afterwards, we're setting up the house to vacuum. And I was telling one of my kids, hey, can you, can you do this? And he said, Dad, work is so good. I don't want to be selfish. I want you to have this honor <laughs> of doing this work. I thought, he got me. <laughs> or maybe you've even seen some of these bumper stickers that relate to your attitude towards work. A bad day fishing is still better than a good day at the office. Or work fascinates me. I could sit and watch it for hours. Or if work is so terrific, how come they have to pay you to do it? We tend to view work like we view fire ants, right? We know God created them. But he must have created them after the fall for the sake of punishment upon us. If you've ever been bit by a fire ant, you kind of wonder, where was this in the garden? Or did it come after? And sometimes we look at our work like that too. I know it was there, but I kind of wonder maybe something happened. We view work as often an undignified, necessary evil. right? It's something we have to do, not something we are made by God and blessed to do. And many people have as their highest goal when it comes to their work to work hard enough so that you don't have to work anymore. And these views and attitudes toward work do not reflect the dignified picture that the Bible paints of work. 
And so to see that, we have to reflect on the creation account in Genesis. I'm going to summarize that. You don't have to, you don't have to turn there. But creation in Genesis 1 really shows us the dignity and value of work in a number of ways. And one of the ways it shows that is because the very first picture we see of God in the Bible is him at work. Him working diligently, faithfully. The creation story of Genesis displays a God who is a master architect, who forms and shapes and fills the world according to his wisdom. He's also a master artist who fills this world with beauty and creativity, things that are not just functional, but aesthetically beautiful. And we see God in creation, not below digging in the dirt, that he digs in the dirt and he shapes and fashions man after his own image and likeness from the dust of the ground. And not only is he working, but when he steps back, he delights in his work. It is his pleasure. And God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. That is God emulating what every person at Chick-fil-A says to you when they say thank you. It's my pleasure. God was the first one to say that. And this is the picture in Genesis of, of God at work in creation is much different from other ancient myths of creation. In fact, in, in Greek and Roman mythology, work and labor is presented as something that is beneath the gods. So in Mount Olympus, the gods are there and they're realizing there's a lot of things we, we got to do and we don't want to do them. So they task the titans with creating man so that man can do what? Work for the gods. Work is below them and it's a burden that they place on man. But in contradiction to that, Genesis shows us that work is not a burden, it's not cursed, but it is a blessing that we are called to by God who is the master workman, the master architect and the master artist. I remember when this this first hit me. Work is not a part of the fall. It was a part of God's very good plan in the beginning before sin had affected or afflicted anything. The God who creates and designs and arranges and produces made us in his image so that we would display him and reflect him and image him in those things. So the other aspect of the dignity and value of work that we see in Genesis is that work is one of the tasks that God gave us. It's part of what it means to be made in the image of God because through it, we imitate, display, and reflect God. I think one of the reasons that Solomon directs our attention to the ant in Proverbs 6 is because when you watch the ant, maybe when you were a kid, you had one of those science experiments where you, where you get the ant colony and you, you see them dig their tunnels and carry their food. In watching ants work diligently and efficiently, they're so intelligent, and carrying 50 times their body weight. That's the equivalent of a human just carrying around a car on the street. And then in forming these organized colonies where every ant has its role and does it in interdependence and synchronization with one another, what you're seeing is a prime example of a creature doing what its creator made them to do and displaying an image of God through that. And in one sense, when we are slack on our work or we don't view it with dignity, the ant is meant to be a rebuke to us. That's why Proverbs says, go and look at the ant. That, that animal that labors industriously and efficiently and consider that we are made in God's image. So how much more so should we see work as something that is dignified and valuable and that displays the wisdom of God. And when we do it, we display and reflect God. When we do our work with an it's my pleasure attitude, we reflect the God who delights in his work. When the cabinet maker builds and crafts something beautiful, they reflect the God who is the master craftsman, who makes everything from nothing. 
When the math teacher explains how to divide fractions and how to calculate probabilities, they reflect the God who made all things decently and in order. When the musician composes and plays and the artist paints, they reflect the God who made the world not just function, but aesthetically beautiful and harmonious. Composing music is just taking the notes that God has already placed in the world and the sounds that he's already placed in the world and rearranging them so that they display harmony and beauty. Painting is just taking the colors that God has already placed in this world and just rearranging them and displaying them so that they reflect God's beauty. Or when the doctor treats a patient or a mother works tirelessly to nurture and care for her children, they reflect the God who providentially sustains the world by the word of his power moment by moment to provide what we need for life. The list of possible ways to reflect God in our work is as numerous and seemingly mundane as the tasks we do every single day. In fact, according to the Bible, there is no such thing that is worthy of being labeled a mundane task. Why is that? Because there is no such thing as a mundane God that that task reflects. Everything we do reflects the God who made us. So our work has dignity because God works, and our work has dignity because when we do it, we reflect the God who made us. And our work has dignity because it is a means of our worship to God. What we do here, Sunday, is significant. It is part of the corporate gathering that God has called the church to. But you don't stop worshiping when you leave this building. Monday through Saturday, in your vocations and callings and in your tasks, whatever you're called to do, Paul says, it's part of your worship. It is an act of worship to the God who made you to work. So Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. What this asks us to reflect on is, what is your primary motivation in your work? What, what drives you to be diligent and skillful and ethical and productive in your work? What Paul is saying in Colossians 3 is that our answer to that question should not be promotion or recognition or compensation or even not having to work once your work is done. Those are the good fruits of good work. And and Proverbs wants to point those out to us. Those are often good fruits of being a faithful and diligent worker according to God's wisdom. In fact, what Proverbs is showing us is that when you go with the grain of the universe— God often blesses that and enriches it by providing these wonderful good fruits. Like, for example, Proverbs 13.4 says, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. Well, the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. That's a good fruit of good work. Proverbs 10.4 says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. That's a good fruit of good work. Proverbs 22.29 says, Do you see a man skillful in his work? One who cares about competency and doing it well, he will stand before kings. That's a good fruit often of good work. God often and ordinary, ordinarily blesses good work with good fruit. And we should thank him and be grateful for those things. But the good fruit of good labor should not be our primary focus and driving motivation in how a Christian does their work. It should be this. The primary motivation for your work should be this. I am not my own, for I have been bought with a price. Therefore, I want to glorify God with the work that he has called me to do, wherever he has called me. 
in whatever season of life I am. The issue is God has set up an order to things. And when we put first things first, we often get second things. When we put good work in service to God first, we often get the fruits that flow from it. But when we put second things first, we often get neither first things nor second things. It misfires. So we need to put first things first. And notice that in Colossians 3.23, Paul says, whatever you do, whatever you do. Paul does not support this so-called sacred and secular distinction of work that was so prevalent throughout church history. I think there there are many Christians who have this underlying view that those who really work for the Lord are those who are in full-time ministry, and the rest of us are basically just rearranging the furniture on the Titanic. That's what we're doing. We've already hit the iceberg. I'm glad there's a pastor getting people on the lifeboat, and I guess I'm just going to keep... Yeah, the band's playing, and I'll, I'll rearrange the seats. That misses and undermines the picture of work that the Bible gives. All work, whatever you do, is an act of worship because it's a means of honoring the God who called us to subdue, cultivate, and expand. The Bible begins with a centralized, localized garden and a commission to fill the earth, subdue it, cultivate it. And then the Bible ends with that garden having filled and being flourishing in a new heavens and a new earth. And in between there is God's call on his image bearers to work and cultivate and expand and build. All of us are gardeners in our own way, according to our various callings and gifts. And our work, all of our work, is a worshipful way of expanding and anticipating the garden of a new creation where we see the full fruition, where all the thorns and thistles of our work are gone, we see what God has blessed. And I love this quote. It's it's attributed to Martin Luther. I I couldn't find it in his work, so I don't know if it's him, but Martin Luther is significant in church history because he did the most to kind of dispel this notion of the sacred-secular divide. There's a view that if you really wanted to gain God's favor, you had to, like Luther, be a full-time monk, and the rest just did what they had to do because they couldn't be monks, and it needed to be done. And yet, this is what he said, talking about the priesthood of all believers, that we're justified not by our religious activity, but we're justified by faith in Christ, and therefore all of our work is meaningful. He said this, The Christian shoemaker honors God with his work, not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship and because your neighbor needs good shoes. What he's saying is, all of us, whatever place we find us, we have a vocation, we have a calling. And in that calling, God is saying, serve here for my glory and expanding and cultivating the earth. Well, work is also an act of worship, not just because it's a means of honoring the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but because it's a means of honoring the second commandment, loving your neighbor as yourself. So Proverbs 21, 25, and 26 indicates this by contrasting the community value of the sluggard with the diligent, righteous person. It says, the desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. What this saying is, the one who refuses to work, or is lazy in the work, provides nothing to their neighbor, but they're begging and demanding. They have nothing to give. They have nothing to provide for others. They don't produce. They just consume. They take without giving. 
But the one who works diligently is able to love his neighbor in two ways. One, his work provides something necessary to society to build it up and maintain. He is a producer who's cultivating and expanding. And also, because he works, out of the overflow of his work, he is able, as need arises, to be generous and serve others because he has worked. And consider the the indirect and often unseen way that our work is a way of blessing other people in this scenario. Imagine that everyone right now adopts a practice of the sluggard and stops working completely. Everyone in the world simultaneously says, I'm going to go to sleep as a door turns on its hinges, so I'm going to turn on my bed right now. What would happen? Well, everyone would turn from a producer to consumer only, exclusively. So food would vanish from the shelves, leaving everyone hungry. Gas pumps would be empty and transportation unavailable, leaving everyone stranded. Cities would be unpatrolled and fires left to burn themselves out, leaving everyone vulnerable and unsafe. All communication technology and utilities would go dead, leaving everyone cut off and in the dark. The only people who would survive in this scenario are those who know how to hunt, build a shelter, and build a fire, which is to say, not my family, okay, unfortunately. (laughs) Think of it. The, The difference between a chaotic, untamed wilderness and a civilized society where life can go on and have the chance to flourish is simply people going about their work for the sake of others. And whether they acknowledge it or not, Their work is a means of loving their neighbor by sustaining this, by cultivating a wilderness into a civilized society. This is why Proverbs 18.9 gives this warning. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. In other words, there's a close relationship between those who actively do harm and those who actively do nothing. They both are a destroyer rather than a producer and a builder. Our work is not a post-fall punishment or a temporary necessary evil. Work is a dignified aspect of how God designed us to function and live. So work is good because God himself is the master worker, and he does all things very well. Work is good because God made us and calls us to work in ways that image and reflect him. And our work, whatever we do, is good because by it we worship God. And the ultimate focus of our work is hearing from the one who says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. So to work according to God's wisdom, we need to understand the dignity of work. But there's another aspect we need to consider. To work according to God's wisdom, we need to understand the thorns and thistles that are associated with our work. Right? We, we do our work not in the garden before the fall. We do our work east of Eden and west of the new heavens and new earth. We do our work in a world that is filled with thorns and thistles. So to understand the value of work, we need to understand creation. But to understand the frustration of work, we need to understand the fall, Genesis 3 and forward. So creation shows us the goodness of work, the dignity of it. But Genesis 3 shows us how the fall and sin deeply affects our work and even how we go about our work. There are all sorts of thorns and thistles now associated with our work. And one of the effects of sin on our work is that we constantly have to guard against temptations to go about our work contrary to God's design. There are many things, there are many thorns and thistles I could pick, but I just want to focus on one. And, and one of those temptations, one of the thorns and thistles with our work is that we're constantly tempted to improperly balance 
work and rest. But we're constantly tempted to go to one extreme or the other in the original pattern that God designed us for. Work, rest. Work and rest. So think of God's pattern in Genesis. Six days, he works skillfully, diligently. And then he rests. And he looks back at what he's done. He says, this is very good. And he takes delight. And he gets even refreshment, as it were, as Exodus tells us. And this is a pattern for us to follow. We know because it becomes a precept in Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, with the fourth commandment. Remember this. Six days you shall labor, and every seventh day you shall rest. So work is good, and so is rest, especially when they're in proper balance and relationship with one another. When we break up the balance and sever the relationship, we actually forfeit the blessing of either and experience a curse from both. So Proverbs warns us on both of these extremes. The sluggard, which is very prominent and prevalent in Proverbs, stands as the person who is all rest and no work. The sluggard lives for leisure, and he works very hard to avoid labor of any kind. So look at the profile of the sluggard in Proverbs 26, 13 to 16. You can see that in your bulletin. This is meant to be kind of satirical and comical as a way of showing how foolish this is. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but it wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men, seven men who can answer sensibly. So it's meant to be this comical picture of someone who will do anything they can to avoid the thing that they're called to do, which is work and labor. And I think, I, I think the Super Bowl is tonight or next week or whatever it is, but the picture I get is you have someone at your, your Super Bowl party and they take the Tostitos and they, they get it to the salsa. It's just too much. They just leave it there and it's just left there for whoever comes next. It's, just, it's too hard to get it back. And it's meant to kind of be the shocking satirical profile that serves as a warning that this is what happens when we become gluttons for leisure. When we properly or we, we improperly balance rest and work. Because what happens is when we do this, we forfeit the blessings and the calling of meaningful, productive work. And eventually, even our rest turns into a curse that comes back to bite us. Here, here's one example of this that I, I know in my own life. Perhaps I'm not alone in struggling with procrastination. Maybe, maybe you've had that in your own life at one time or another. And usually procrastination goes like this. There's a task that is kind of weighing on your mind. It's that computer program on the front of your screen. You know it's there, but you keep hiding it. And you keep putting it down low. And you tell yourself, I'm going to get to this eventually. right? The deadline's far enough away. It's not due right now. And what happens with that is instead of enjoying a restful rest, what you feel creeping up on you is this growing stress that makes you anxious and agitated because you know there's something you should be doing that you're not doing. And so even though you're trying to rest, you can't really rest restful. Instead of enjoying a quiet evening where you could sleep well, you're tossing and turning, nagged by a sense of guilt because you put off tomorrow, you put off to tomorrow what should have been done today. And so even the rest you are trying to take now without the work becomes a curse because you can't enjoy it in the way it was meant to be done. So I, I read this helpful book on procrastination, which I, I plan to start implementing eventually. Um, and it gave this very helpful bit of wisdom. 
just a, a little kernel of wisdom that I, I've tried to implement as a way of like saying, okay, I'm going to apply just a practical, general, common grace wisdom to this. And they said this. Most time what procrastinators need to do is just stop and reflect on the task or project that they're most wanting to avoid right now. And then once they have that in their mind, write it down on the top of your to-do list, and now you know what is the first thing you need to tackle tomorrow when you wake up. That is the bona fide way to deal with procrastination. And yet on the other extreme, Proverbs warns us against the ceaseless toiler, or what we call the workaholic, the person who is all work and no rest. So look at Proverbs 23, 4 and 5. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5 primarily casts the ceaseless toiler, the workaholic, as one who's he's so driven that he cannot put his work down because there's something he wants that he needs to get from his work. Do not toil to acquire wealth. So, so toil is that, that word. Once at work is that, that good word. Toil is the ceaseless, endless, never, never stopping labor. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist, to rest. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. So on the other extreme, there are those who are so driven by profit. They're, they're so driven by perfectionism that they just have to get it exactly right. Or so driven by proving themselves to others. Or maybe they, jo- they enjoy their work so much they don't know how to put it down and, and shift to the next thing and take a break. I remember hearing a story that a, a pastor's kid told and probably sat in my memory because I'm not a pastor as kids. And he recounted how he had begged and begged his dad to take him to a baseball game. He, he wanted to go see a professional baseball game. Dad didn't really like sports, and he thought they were kind of wasted time, but he finally acquiesced, and he took his son to one baseball game, and this pastor spent the whole game with the theology book open and his head buried in the theology book, reading the book as the son sat there and watched the baseball game as if he were all alone. And I remember hearing that because the son said, you know, that was just one of those memories that it really had an impression on me. And, and you know, I, I can understand in one sense, un- unlike soccer, baseball is very boring at times. But that's still not striking a healthy balance, okay? When we fail to properly cease and desist from our work, we miss out on the blessings of rest, and even our work turns into a type of curse. And we, we don't often think, we, we, can, we can see, especially from Proverbs, we can see the cost of laziness, right? There, there's a, a clear, cut-and-dry cost to laziness. But what about the workaholic? Well, the sluggard has to deal with the cost of unemployment. Nobody's going to hire him. He has to deal with the cost of financial poverty. He has to deal with the cost of lacking the foresight to work now so that he can enjoy his labors later. But the workaholic has to deal with the physical and relational poverty that comes from burning the candle on both ends. Right? There is a cost even to failing to cease from your work to engage in the other things that God has called us to. There is balance that is needed. And as much as we'd like to think that we are the perfectly balanced, working and resting individual who whistles while they work heartily and happily to the Lord, we know that isn't usually or even often the case. And this is why our final point is the most important one. To work for the Lord, we need to rest in the work that he has done for us. To work for the Lord heartily, we need to rest in the work that he has done for us. If we look long enough and close enough at our work, it's easy to spot how the fall has brought a sense of futility to our work and how sin has taken what God has made good and made it difficult and hard and spoiled it. There's the the never-ending cycle of completing one task 
just in time to start another task or to start the same one over again. Every time we do laundry, I feel, I feel that, that futility, the vanity, chasing after the wind. You do laundry, it's done, and you've got to start it over again. Even cooking. You know, you, you're either cleaning up from cooking, you're eating what you cooked, or you're preparing what you're going to eat next that you're going to have to clean up later. Or the rise up the corporate ladder, the increase in pay, the additional vacation sometimes seems to increase the burden rather than providing that satisfaction you were hoping for. Or maybe you do your work diligently and purposely, but you always seem to struggle with thoughts of, is it good enough? Am I doing the right kind of work? Is it actually making a difference? Or perhaps you feel the guilt from failing to properly worship God with your work because you've made an idol out of work or you've made an idol out of not working. Well, the God who made work sent his son to do the ultimate work so that we could find true rest. Think about it. In creation, God is the gardener, beautifying, filling, forming everything. In the Gospels, he's a carpenter and a preacher. And I remember someone saying to me one time, you know, they're asking me what my kids were going to do when they grow up, and they knew I was a pastor, so I said, you remember God had one son and he made him a preacher. And my first thought was, well, yeah, for 30 years, though, he was a carpenter, and that was still good and faithful work. And we think about, for most of Jesus' life, we do not have a detailed account of what he did. But we have some idea. We know that Jesus lived in relative obscurity, faithfully honoring his heavenly father by working according to his wisdom, according to Proverbs, and by faithfully honoring his earthly father by taking up the trade that he had passed on to him. He was a carpenter, doing good craftsmanship, fulfilling God's wisdom that we had failed to fulfill. And then he began his public ministry as a preacher where he said things like this. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly of heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When Jesus is saying that, he's saying that our ultimate hope and satisfaction and rest cannot be found in our labor or our leisure but only in him. That if we try to find our hope and identity and purpose in our work, or we try to find satisfaction in our rest, it will misfire. And yet when we rest in him, and then we go about our work and our rest, we find true hope and satisfaction in it. The only work that unburdens us and gives us rest is the work of a carpenter on a cross in Calvary who came to do what his father called him to do and said when he was done, it is finished. My work is perfect, sufficient, and complete. Our only hope, joy, and satisfaction is found in the one who took a servant's towel and washed his disciples' feet, taking on the lowest menial task, saying, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. So Christian, make no mistake, you are saved by works, but not your works, but by the works of him who came to do the ultimate work for us, and he did it perfectly, sufficiently, heartily, diligently to his Father. And now, this gracious work of Christ motivates us to do good work and to do good with our work because we are serving the one who loved us and gave himself up for us. There can be no more dignity to our work than what Paul says at the end of Colossians 3.24. You are serving the Lord Christ. That there is one, the ultimate one, who looks upon our work with delight because we do it in honor of him. And his gracious work gives us hope and meaning to our work. 
Because as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, our work in the Lord is not in vain. Because of his resurrection, because of the hope and promise of a new creation where the garden fills that whole world, our labor in the Lord is not in vain because he has come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And that includes all the thorns and thistles associated with our work. So rest in his work. And out of that rest, work heartily for him. Let's pray.